0: The only way commercial banks have made money in this sector is imposing significant fees on poor people, essentially, on on working people. And our model is, can we offer a wide variety of financial services over time and charge the lowest fees in the industry?
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Keith Mestrich, who is an interesting kind of political entrepreneur. He is a founding member and managing director of Per Capita a new kind of financial company working to empower everyday people to realize their financial aspirations. They're developing a digital financial services platform for low-wage workers, among others. Keith comes out of the research and financial side of the union movement. He was chief financial officer at SEIU and later president of the union-owned Amalgamated Bank for many years. I enjoyed hearing how he built his career and what he is up to now with Per Capita. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Keith Mestrich of the Financial Startup Per Capita.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from time plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com.
1: Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Keith, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Keith Messrich. I
0: um, have had a long career in social justice, politics, and business. I started my career in the late 1980s by responding to a blind ad in the Washington Post to be a research analyst. I thought I was pursuing my dream to come to Washington and work in the government or work in politics, and it ended up being a job to do corporate research for a division of the AFL-CIO, something I thought I had no interest in whatsoever, but I found I was pretty good at it. I found that I um, I quite enjoyed it. It was a lot about assessing corporations to determine their relative strengths and weaknesses, all in support of working people so that they could bargain effective contracts or find vulnerabilities in instances where they could organize those workplaces. So it was fascinating and it gave me a really deep insight into business. And I did that for a long time. I did that until the late 90s when I began to shift a little bit what I was doing and taking those same skills and applying them to look inwardly towards labor unions themselves. And we did really deep analysis of how unions were allocating their resources, spending their money um, and doing that. And that resulted in me having an offer to come work for a union called Unite which was sort of the remnants of all the old clothing and garment workers that had been very, very powerful in the country, but in the late 90s were sorting through the ravages that um, globalization had done for um, their companies, which had largely moved outside of the United States. And they were trying to reinvent themselves and think about what they were doing. And I was asked to come on board and help lead that effort. So I reorganized a lot of the internal research operation there. I um, helped do some focus on some new industries they were focused on, and I ultimately became the chief of staff there and and helped run the union on a day-to-day basis. The union didn't really make it and ended up merging with the largest uh, private sector union in the country, SEIU. And when that happened, I joined SEIU as the chief financial officer. And then in 2012, I had an opportunity to kind of come back to Unite, um, which had a... um, Had a unique history, and one of the things that they owned was a bank called the Amalgamated Bank. Um, It was a bank that was started in the 1920s. Uh, It was a bank formed explicitly for working people. It was a bank that was in deep trouble after the financial crisis of 2008. I joined it as its Washington director. And in 2014, when the bank was still in trouble, became its CEO, helped lead it out of trouble, revive it. We took it public in 2018. I was at the bank for 10 years. We built it into an institution that really served not just working people, but the institutions that they were part of, We became a significant bank for the Democratic Party and all of its candidates and organizations, and really became a bank that banked the social justice movement, nonprofit organizations, philanthropies that that supported. I did that until um, uh, 2021, last year. I retired from the bank last year. Since then, I've been uh, part of a startup uh, called Per Capita, which is helping develop a digital financial services platform for low-wage workers and really planning to offer that through the benefits platforms of the, people, of the companies that they, that they work for. That's my employment history. I grew up in a small town in South Dakota. I was the son of a country doctor. I married a lovely woman, who, and we've made our lives in Washington, D.C., raised three kids, um, avid New York Yankees fan, and amateur cook.
1: Boy, you had me the whole way until the Yankees (laughs) fan.
0: I get that. I get that a lot.
1: My father uh, grew up in Brooklyn, which probably says enough there about the alternate path of our loyalties as a family. Super interesting career to me. And in a little way adjacent to mine, which was in the progressive software space early on, I'd heard about Amalgamated Bank. Uh, some point along the way, and didn't really ever have clarity about what it was or what it did. So, was really happy to have a chance to talk to you about it and your current startup right now. Tell me a little bit about that that union time, a little more in, in detail. How you go from being a research analyst to someone with all of these responsibilities in the CFO range? What do you think it was about you that that made that path successful.
0: I really applaud the early mentors that I had at the AFL who taught me something that you wouldn't think of as a skill that was needed in the labor movement. But labor unions always had these economist shops, right, that would help try and assess the industry. This is back when there was industrial bargaining. And so they would take a very you know smart approach because they had to understand the economics in the industry to know what they could ask for. This was at a time when, remember, 35% of the private sector workforce was a member of unions and unions had real power, so they could express their demands. So, so they, always, they always had it. It was a skill set that as the labor movement declined was one of the things that went by the wayside. And I would say that was, that was one. So there was a void to be able to, to fill there. And it was hard to find people to do it because people who had an inclination to do that didn't want to go work for a labor union. They wanted to go work for an investment bank or a a company or a corporation or an actuary firm or an accounting firm or a consultancy firm. But they, they didn't think about going in the labor movement. So there was a there was a void. The other thing that became very, very clear to me in my time in the trade union movement was, and and I saw this subsequently when I was at Amalgamated and had a lot of clients who were in the nonprofit sector, was how much the sector really sort of de-emphasized the need to have people who really knew how to run organizations. And I really mean that from an administrative standpoint, really the management of the organizations was something that was just completely, completely missing. From the equation here. And these were in the, the labor movement in particular, when it came to progressive organizations, was actually fairly well healed in terms of its finances. Long ago, the four fathers and mothers of the movement had figured out uh, 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 the classic earned revenue stream where they got dues from their members, and they developed a very, very efficient means of collecting those dues. They negotiated provisions in the contracts that required the employers to collect them in the paychecks and remit them. So there was no longer this need to go hand collect dues. So there's a very steady revenue stream. The, the unions had had invested in real estate. They had built buildings. They had pension funds that obviously was not money they could use but they had some sophisticated ability to 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 do this so they had resources but it was so clear that that there was very little management skill that stepped back and thought about how do we actually use these resources in an effective way to continue building our organizations and making them strong and so there was they a lot of leaders in the labor movement had kind of rested on their laurels and just let their organizations bask in the past glory and had this revenue that was coming in and and they were able to do it. And as the stress was beginning to put on those organizations and they were shrinking, the need to think about de-emphasizing parts of the union that had significant resources allocated to it changed. And in the 90s, there was a real effort to try and get unions to move away from putting resources into local representation and things and rebuild power. And so it was shifting resources to both politics and to organizing. The organizing shift of resources never really worked very well. There was never an ability. The labor movement hasn't really been figured out how to organize. But it's undeniable that from the mid-90s on, the labor movement kind of figured out how to play way above its weight in terms of politics. And even though it was a declining movement, I would argue to you that the labor movement's influence is more, more important now than it was in the 1980s after sort of Reagan had decimated the unions and a number of other things. And that was because there was this important shift of resources. So there was some need to it. Having said that, the rest of the organizations were still not particularly well run. Not great way of thinking about budgeting. I mean, I can't even tell you how many unions we looked at that how they budgeted was they added up all the money they spent in the year, tallied it up and called that a budget. There was no strategic planning associated. There was no smart talent recruitment initiatives that were put in place, IT was woefully behind, continues to be woefully behind, is because nobody with that sort of sense of how to run an organization was valued in these organizations. They existed, but but organizations had a head bookkeeper, not a CFO, who could actually make smart and strategic plans. They had IT help desk people, but they didn't have a real chief information officer who could develop an IT strategy for the union as this developed by the way this is still a significant a significant deficiency when i went to seiu and i i talked with andy stern who was president at the time and we were talking about what was needed I, I laid out a role that said you know i could come in and really help you look at your own internal finances but i wanted to be a partner if i was going to do that i didn't want to just run the accounting shop i wanted to be a partner i wanted to have a seat on the senior staff table that we would do it and try and evolve that to be able to think about resource allocation. It was that void that I really um, moved into. Um, and, then, and then the move to Amalgamate, I was ready to do something else and was originally set to try and rebuild the business in, in in Washington. And as the bank just continued to not be able to emerge from its depths of the of the recession, and as the board was looking for a, a new CEO, CEO, I was not originally a candidate to do that. I, I wouldn't have even thought I would have been. But because I had this relationship with the union, I was asked to come and 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 be an acting head of the bank, and I I won by default <laughs> to really to really get the job, and hired really good people who taught me a lot and and uh, and
1: and learned 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 the craft a little bit. It's sometimes just being at the right place in the right time. I mean, I, it, what it intrigues me about you is that if I understand it right, you were like you are a political science major. So there's two threads here that I'm curious about. One is like were you originally like a person politically that fit with unions and fit with the kind of social justice path did that come from your background and then how did you translate the skills that you pick up in college into sort of the financial skills that you pick up along the way
0: yeah i i got a political bug at a young age i, I became very very interested in, in, in politics My family has working class roots. My grandfather worked in a a steel mill in East Chicago, Indiana. My dad paid for his medical education, you know, by going into the army and working as a resident, as an an army doctor, bought a small country doctor's practice in Aberdeen, South Dakota. So real kind of working class, um, old sort of farm labor roots. When I was growing up in South Dakota, nobody believes this anymore, but the congressional delegation was George McGovern. Guy named Jim Aberisk, who was the first Arab-American elected to the United States, and, t- and Tom Daschle. That was, that was South Dakota when I was a, when I was a kid growing up. So it was, it, was, it was really different. It was sort of old Grange Plains kind of politics. And, and somewhere along the line, I'm not quite exactly sure how, interested, how I, I got it, but I got a political bug. And I, I, I thought that's really what I wanted to do, really go work in politics, maybe even run for office one day. Um, got a degree in political science, really focused on American government and public policy. And without a job graduated and moved to washington and was going to get a job and i thought i was going to go work on the hill that's what i thought i was going to do and i i didn't and it was and i and i i, I ended up uh getting this job at the at the afl the job market was pretty tight at the time i had to, i had i had to take something so i did it and i ended up loving it and i stayed and i it was it was that it was that took that fork in the road and and, and stayed on it
1: so many careers are shaped by these fortuitous moments like that, you know, following that ad and taking that job, and then making the most of it. You were a smart guy; you learned uh, along the way, and and look and turn into a bank president. Yeah.
0: I amazing. was really, I was really lucky. I found some people early in my career too who took an interest in me and wanted to. I mean, I, you, this is the other thing you hear all the time, right? People who find good mentors early. You know, my first boss was like that. We just we, he who was he, that. There's a guy named Bob Harbrandt. He had been he had a really interesting career. He started in the mailroom at the AFL and somehow figured out how to put this little unit of people who could do this corporate research together. And he and he just hired young kids. He he took a different approach, right? He hired young kids and trained them to do this stuff rather than hiring rank and filers who had become uh, union officers and, and and done this, and so it was a little controversial at the time. And we were these young, brash kids working in you know a pretty staid, bureaucratic organization. But he spent a lot of time with me, and and when you get that kind of opportunity, somebody who can just um, help you and push you, it it really helps. I was mm-hmm. deeply grateful for it, and it made that early work, which was. I mean, this was not the most glamorous work. I mean, this was this was researching companies pre-internet days. This would be like you get you go on the road for two weeks to research a private company and you dig into court records that were not digitized or anything. And so it was just it was kind of grueling grunt grunt work. But if somebody's interested in you and giving you a pathway on how you're going to advance and talking about about why it matters that, that makes a big that makes a big difference. So I was lucky in that I was lucky in that regard.
1: I interviewed Andy Stern this fall, and uh, he's a character and a significant labor unionist of the last while. What was it like working with him? It was great, yeah.
0: um and I, I I was a big fan of Andy. still am a big fan of andy and and he um he I think he was the boldest labor leader of his generation. I really do he he under you know under him, the SEIU doubled in size. It just did great things. But what was what was great is there was a huge amount of empowerment in that organization. There was the ability for people at all different kinds of levels, if they had an idea, if they had a theory, that they could they could put it out there and there was an opportunity to move it in in, in the union. Maybe sometimes the union took up too many ideas before they were baked out a little bit but I, Andy was bold and Andy I think pushed you know a number of hot buttons he was hugely controversial but he was he was right on a lot of things he figured out how to use the political power of the union to gain significant representation for both government and and healthcare workers i, I mean hundreds of thousands of workers who didn't have representation before and used the political power smartly to do that he wasn't afraid to sort of take on big corporations and challenged them to think about b- bigger agreements and contracts. Un- unfortunately, a lot of the rest of the labor movement undermined a lot of the progress that he did. Um, he refocused the union on an alliance with a lot of other organizations at a time when the labor movement was not a great coalition partner. I think if you look at anything that sort of is a successful strategy today, it would probably got its start, you know, because it was an idea that that Andy had really admire him. We took a lot of chances and we needed that. And by the way, when the union needed to make important decisions, Andy brought his his key advisors together and really listened. And and I always appreciate that. I mean, he was the he was he was not Putin, right? Who sits there and makes decisions on his own. He really brought a lot of people in and it was it was it, it was it, he was a great leadership model for me.
1: The labor unions right now are they're still a really significant part of the progressive ecosystem and, and sort of the popular the popular front against the Trumpist movement in this country. But the membership of the unions is much more complex than that politically. There are people spanning a wide variety of, of political beliefs. How do you think about that relationship of politically the unions to their workers when in this time of polarization, it was always like that. I don't know what it was like in the
0: 60s and 70s and the 50s when there were these mass movements of blue collar workers led by blue collar workers, right, who did, did did a lot of this. But when, when I came to the labor movement, it was always 60-40, you know, 60% of the union membership would vote with the union leadership and, and the Democratic Party and 40 wouldn't. But that was that was better than the 52-48 split that, that existed in the rest of the country, whichever way that went. And the trade union movement had some ability to influence it. But I think about this a lot because I think we're really seeing this um, unbelievable shift where working class people are finding more allegiance to the Republican Party right now than they are the Democratic Party. That is seemingly to me across the demographic spectrum, right? Black working people, Latino and Hispanic working people, because the Democratic Party as, is not really speaking to working class folks anymore, right? I mean, it is much more dominated by liberal elites. And I think it is hard, right, for working class people who are thinking about bread and butter issues all the time to find a lot of affinity in a lot of the issues that, that progressive elites want to talk about. I don't know what we'll do in the, in the trade union ranks because the trade union leaders, I think, still see great allegiance to the Democratic Party and are trying to push it to, to get back to the kind of you know, kitchen table economic issues that you build a great coalition around. If the party can do that, I, I think right you'll get back to that sort of 60% of union members wanting wanting, wanting to do that you got to talk to issues that that workers care about. And while there's been some, there's been some uh, advances in terms of representing some more professional class and everything, the people still represented by labor movement are people who do the work every day. They might be in non-traditional workplaces that people think of from a, a workplace. So they're not factories and construction sites anymore. They're hospitals and universities, but the people who really make up the bulk of workers in those places are people who do food service and janitorial work and, you know, cut the grass and, and, and do other things. The blue-collar working class, for the most part, they've got to speak to those issues.
1: When I was in sixth grade, we did this thing called mini society in my class, which everyone assumed different roles in society. And for some reason, I became a banker. Ever since then, it kind of stuck in my head that we needed a bank that was not a conservative force in society, that tried to, to do better by its depositors than necessarily just making money or, or whatever. I, I was always just very curious about amalgamated and how it seemed to be a little bit different politically than others. Can you tell me a little more about that bank and like, and where it fits politically?
0: Sure. Um, so it's, it, it had different points in its history, right? When it was originally founded in, in 1923, um, it was one of about 30 labor banks at the time. There was this mini phenomenon that, that both the labor movement and the Grange movement that had organized farmers throughout the Plains states were, were organizing banks. Um, and they were mostly doing it because banking was very hard to get if you were an ordinary person. It was expensive. Banking was really built for the the the, the rich. And so there was this phenomenon of starting these banks. Most of them did not make it you know, past 1929. Most of them failed, but there's five or six that are still in existence um, today. It was a very sort of simple notion of what we do. Give working people a safe place to keep their money. Um, Figure out ways to extend small amounts of credit. Remember, this is all pre-credit card days. So, you know, small dollar loans that somebody could use to buy a refrigerator or pre-student loans, you know, maybe send the kid to college, whatever you needed to, to, to do it for, and to support the labor movement. And so the, the bank did commercial banking for unions. Um, they had some clever things in the 70s. If you got an auto loan at Amalgamated, the, the rate was one thing. If you were a union member, it was a quarter point lower. And if you were a union member who bought an American car, it was another quarter point lower. So they kind of had these, these things. But it was really a consumer bank for, for much of its history. Um, In terms of, 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 of doing that, when interstate banking really became much more of a norm and you began to get these giant institutions like Bank of America, like Chase Bank, like Wells Fargo, it became harder and harder for smaller banks to compete for those consumer dollars. The bank was challenged. By that and and the traditional union was shrinking and the bank was largely located in Manhattan and Manhattan became less and less of a of a, of a place where working people lived and so it was hard right to run a traditional branch model and, and do that um, where the bank was having success though and this began in the late 70s and other things is it started a trust business that provided investment management services to union pension funds. So provided custodial services and very simple index funds that could compete with anybody else and do it. But the bank had a very unique thing that they did, and that early on, they recognized that shareholders had power. And they used these funds to actually use the power to engage with companies to put worker issues forward. And so they were in the vanguard. The bank was in the vanguard of really pushing shareholder resolutions that in in the earliest days were just straight up things like pushing the company to recognize unions or pay their workers more or, or do these things. And they evolved to, to be much more focused on more arcane corporate governance things as the law changed and corporate America figured out how to silence pensioners through changes in ERISA and, and, and other things like that. But the bank became really began to evolve to much more focused on the kind of commercial services it could offer, primarily to unions at, at the time. The bank got very extended at the time of the financial crisis, 2007 and, and, and eight on the trust side of the bank had, tremend, had had tremendous success in putting together a construction loan fund that invested in, in union construction projects. But as the real estate market became very stressed, there were fewer and fewer of those projects to do and the bank reached and, and ended up financing a lot of much more riskier projects and that fund fell on some hard times. The bank was losing consumer customers. Was trying to to re, re, replace them. Was losing money in this construction fund and to try and make it up on on its own balance sheet. Also was making risky loans, and like many institutions at the time, when the economy collapsed, the bank was was in pretty bad shape, and in fact was under regulatory supervision um, at the time. So the bank regulators required a whole bunch of. of of changes, the bank could no, no longer be exclusively owned by the union. They were undercapitalized, had to bring in some other investors, and brought in a couple of private equity funds who were union friendly, um, but but gave the bank a, a bit of a lifeline, and tried right to keep doing what they had done before, mostly consumer banking. It just didn't work. The bank had overbuilt its branch network, try, you know, tried to expand branches at a time when it was done, and branches were losing a lot of money. So in, in 2013 and 14, we, we originally said, let's try and expand our commercial banking base. And the first client we got thinking outside the labor movement was the Democratic National Committee. They became a client to the bank. And we kind of convinced them that they should be banking with the Union Bank, right? It was, it was just a straight up, you know, pledge of allegiance that we asked them to make. And, and they did it. But we found that there were some really unique needs that political campaigns had. And you know this from, from, from your time, right? There's, there's some real things. I mean, there's, there's simple things like like political organizations need to wire a lot of money very late in the day. And if you can keep your wire room open later, it's, it's good for them. Political organizations get founded today and they were in business tomorrow. And if you knew how to use those documents, you could open accounts from them. So we really built a, a business being able to do that. And said, well, why don't we just expand this and become a bank for other parts of the progressive movement? Because to your point that you made earlier, there was no bank in service to this movement. All these banks were really in service to either local communities, good work that a lot of local communities do, or were really in service to, to big business. And it was all, everything was geared towards taking the deposits of people and lending it back um, um, to them. Yet here was a movement between the labor movement and its funds and the amount of money that flows through politics and social justice organizations. If you could begin to collect it in one place, you could actually begin to build an organization that could develop not so much products. Our products weren't that unique because a bank, a checking account is a checking account, a savings account is a savings account. But the services, could we really tailor our services to meet the needs of progressive organizations? And so that was some of those things in politics. But it was also becoming a kind of a financial advisor to them and helping them make some smarter decisions on the ways that they were doing their banking or using, you know, or, or or using their finances. And and so that so we became a real trusted advisor. But the other thing that we did is that we weren't that big a company, but we began to be one of the few corporate voices that would stand out and stand up for policy issues. And so we were a corporate voice that would be supportive of increasing the minimum wage to $15. We did it for our own employees and we advocated for it from a public policy perspective. We took stands on issues like gun control and, and reproductive rights in support of our clients. And we were one of, we were doing this way before this became this sort of corporate social responsibility, but it gave us huge credibility and people wanted to, people wanted to move their, their dollars. And that's sort of the space that we ended up, that we ended up um, um filling. But what also became clear is that there are billions and billions of unorganized dollars out there. And they're completely dispersed through the financial system. So they sit at all the traditional all traditional banks. If, if our movement, our broad movement could begin to organize our money and put it in a smaller number of institutions that were built for, for us, that's tremendous power and think about what we could do. Not, not just build organizations that could provide the services that those institutions need as commercial entities, but really disrupt banking in a way that could actually go back to the original vision of amalgamated and all those other labor banks and offer good services for working
1: people and ordinary people who kind of get ripped
0: off by the big banks sometimes.
1: So where, where my work touched on this would be, uh, I talked to a lot of campaigns in startup mode and they would sometimes ask about where to bank and and because we did uh, the compliance one of the issues was how friendly would the bank be in terms of like passing you information about your checks could you get uh digital copies of them i ne- i don't remember that ever being really solved at least when i was uh still doing it and then the other th- the other question was can we get a loan? Can we get an advance on our dollars? You know, we we know we're going to be able to raise money, but we need it earlier than we're going to actually get it in the door. Where did Amalgamated come up on those two things? Yeah. So one of the things that we did
0: was, was our approach on hiring our bankers was we We didn't try and hire people from other banks and try and teach them to understand politics or the progressive movement. We actually hired people who had some financial sense out of those movements and taught them how to be a banker. It was actually a lot easier to do that. And so our political banking was really ended up being headed up by a key Obama fundraiser who understood a lot about how that world worked and the CFO from the 2012 reelect obama real life they became our political banking team and so what they ended up uh, it was it was her deputy it was it was a woman named molly Culhane, and then sam brown was our was our key um um person became actually our head of commercial banking um overall um and they recognized all these things and so we began to make sure that we could have this kind of concierge service that we would provide for political campaigns to get them the kinds of things that they needed. We had to do it all within the regulatory framework that was established. And and we had to underwrite loans that we did to politicians in ways that the 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 regulators would think was a, a solid loan that had a high likelihood of being repaid. The key was understanding how the finances of those organizations worked. We were oftentimes able to figure out how to construct a loan for 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 campaigns. It didn't always work, right? There was so sometimes the campaigns were so uh, not in great financial shape that we 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 also couldn't couldn't help them. But it was very important. We could never run an institution that wasn't run on the same principles that every other bank did. We we needed to be a, a, a I'll call it a real bank. But we were a real bank. We had to run and and make sure that we were um in compliance with all the regulations that we met the safety and soundness standards so we had to do it the right way but because our bankers had this credibility with people out of politics they could sit down and work through the issues on how to actually get the documentation in place or get the collateral set up in the right way to be able to be able to do that. And sometimes that was finding a donor who would guarantee a loan. Sometimes there was lots of ways that we that we that we did it. Um, but a lot of it came out of that sort of deep understanding of the of how the industry worked. By the way, not that different on how an oil and gas banker works for the Bank of Oklahoma, or not that different how somebody who banks the auto industry works for a bank that does that. They have deep knowledge of how the industries, so that they can construct those products.
1: There was always this dream every decade about a campaign in a box. Like, you wanna start a campaign, you want to have all of the the nitty gritty, the insurance, the banking, the software, all of these things that no one wants to think about, like ready, um, including banking. Did that ever come to fruition or? I always had this dream, like could you put this
0: little consortium of companies together so we'd be the bank, somebody would be the insurance company, you'd have a compliance firm that could do all your work And, and you'd have, you know, somebody who could manage your lists and do your database and all this back office kind of stuff, which is, is just, for people who know how to do it, it's just rinse and repeat campaign after campaign. And would there be this, would there be this alliance, right? Of these organizations that would just commit
1: to working together with each other.
0: We never got there. We talked about it all the time. There were meetings,
1: there were startups, there, there's like spending power that if aggregated could be smarter and and save money across the movement. but Absolutely. I mean, think of all the redundancy that exists, right? And organizations that
0: could do more in the realm of shared service models on some of these things. If I was still at Amalgamated, I'd be pushing us to actually try and think about, could we actually have a wide array of financial services? Could we be that one trusted financial advisor that could be the connector to all these things. So, we had an alliance with an insurance company that could do all that boring insurance that every nonprofit needs directors and officers' insurance and a liability bond, the things that nobody wants to think about. And frankly, because there's not that sort of sophisticated administration, all these institutions are probably getting ripped off when they go get it. Um, they're, they're in one of two ways. They're either overbuying or more likely they're underbuying and, and and stuff. Could you just be that trusted financial advisor there to, to, to do that? That's still a great company to, to put together
1: how deep was the penetration of amalgamated into the uh into the space i guess when you left like was it uh still pretty thin what had it gotten pretty deep what did it look like yeah
0: um it's pretty thin i mean it's a big movement we had decent penetration of of Local unions in New York City. We'd been there a long time, and we had done that. We had really good penetration in the Democratic Party. We represented essentially all of the party committees, and had a had a pretty good channel of Senate and gubernatorial candidates as they came in, it, you know, incumbents and candidates. Now, I just to be clear, we did their campaign accounts. We didn't do like personal accounts or you know those sort of things. Um, we had a number of international unions that banked with us, but maybe maybe 15 or 20% of the total potential dollars that were there. We were a sliver of the pension fund world. And, you know, the nonprofit world is giant. I mean, we had a good presence. We had a good presence in what I would call high-level progressive think tanks and political organizations, largely based in Washington and
1: New York. But this is a huge
0: potential market for, for a bank like Amalgamated or other banks that could, that could do the same
1: thing. Where would a labor union that wasn't banking with you bank? So you know who our biggest competitors were? Our biggest competitor was the bank
0: that was down the street from wherever the headquarters was because you used to have to go to the bank. So they just found one that was convenient.
1: Yep, that's true. And I think in every space.
0: One hundred percent, and and what what meant what that meant was we very rarely actually any longer saw just small local community banks. Most of most of the movement ended up banking at one of the big four or five institutions, because if you remember in the eighties and nineties, they bought up everybody, <laughs> and so and so and so. Hey, right, you know. Where you and I live, there's a there's a Wells Fargo up in the Chevy Chase, D.C. of Maryland that has been four different banks in the times that I've lived here. So, and, it, and it was just because it got bought by one company after another, after another.
1: Yeah. Going public, what was that like? And what, what consequences did that have for the mission, if any? Yeah. We a little bit had to do it because we had brought in these private investors
0: who had a limited time horizon. They only really have three ways of exiting. One is you find another private buyer. Well the economics of that didn't work out that well. Two, you sell, right You sell to somebody else, and the union who still maintained the majority ownership of the company wanted to maintain ownership. And I think we all thought it was important that we have progressive ownership of the company and couldn't just sell to another bank, for instance. And third is you go, is you go public. And so it was really the only, it was the only option available to us. So the most important thing it was one of the best learning experiences in my life. I probably learned more in the 14 months that, you know, we were in prep mode and then, and then going to it than I ever learned in, in, in my life before. It was a fascinating insight into how capital markets work, right? It is this incredibly insular inside network. If, if people think there's democracy in the capital markets, there's not, right? It's it's completely controlled by the banking community in terms of who gets access to be able to buy into these companies and, 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 and other things. I was fascinated by it because on one level, it gave us the chance to have a public currency that we could use to continue to grow the institution, right? We had, a, a, we had an ability to raise capital without having to go from investor to investor to try and do it because we could access the capital, capital markets and the ability to, to, to grow. And we used that, we were able to buy another bank in San Francisco that allowed us to grow and, and, and other things. But I will tell you this. I mean, as a small public company, this notion of having to be completely responsive to Wall Street on a quarter by quarter basis, first of all, it's grueling, right? It just took a, it took a lot out of you. And two, there's so many perverse incentives that are built into this on on how on how we force people to run companies. So let's take an issue like executive compensation, for instance, right? There should be metrics on which a CEO, a CFO, a COO and stuff are, 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 are measured. If you think you can put into your metrics anything that's different than the metrics that every other company is looking at, forget it. Because the system is all built to get companies to operate on the same metrics. So you're constantly measured against you know your peers in the industry, and if you're underperforming your peers, you are going to underperform in your compensation. So there's all this pressure, right, to just do what your peers do. And the ability to break out and do something different is, is crazy. And and they're all profitability metrics, right? We were a profitable company. We made more profit in the last five or six years that I was at Amalgamated than the bank had ever made in its history. Was returning to its its shareholders once we turned into profitability. We never weren't profitable again. yet. We were punished by the stock market because we weren't as profitable as the other companies, and it's just a perverse incentive on how to run a company so, so what do you do to get more profitable? You cut workers, you close branches, you do all these because there's only so many ways you can do this.
1: does so it necessarily just turn it into another bank or are you able- I don't think
0: so because we had we had enough been able to sort of say to, to be able to, to we convinced we convinced Wall Street that we had a niche market that nobody else was was targeting. And we had the ability and we got we got pretty close in terms of our metrics on doing it. But I would say we did it because because we weren't just any other bank. We did it because we we were hyper focused on this on this niche and being able to service it. But that's going to require incredibly strong leadership from, you know, the company's management and the board to
1: stay on that course, right? To not re- resist the notion to just become like any
0: other bank.
1: Did the labor owners maintain a controlling interest in it? They didn't. They took their stake down to, uh, down to 40% ownership,
0: 40, 41% ownership of the, of the company. And there were strategic reasons for that because there were, there were issues around being a controlled versus a non-controlled company on your ability to actually raise money. And there was some sense that any controlled entity could have been, you, you, you know, you and I who owned it, and if we controlled it, it would have been harder to raise money. But it was particularly going to be hard if the union was seen as having a controlling stake to raise, to raise other, other, other money.
1: Why did you uh, retire? I was tired, you know. I mean, I, I, I that journey
0: I described for you of taking a company that was in deep trouble and taking it through through public that was that ten year journey. The average tenure of a public company CEO is four and a half years. It was time for me to to you know to do something else, and I had been constantly on the road. Um, I had been been that. And I did, made a decision during COVID, and you, you know, I think a lot of us looked at our lives, and and I um, there were a lot of reasons, but you know, I lost both my parents at a very young age, and they didn't have the chance to do some of the things that they wanted to do later in their lives, and I, I didn't I didn't want to repeat that. I, I don't think I would have made that decision had it not been for COVID, to be honest with you. But but that was a big piece of it. And I didn't know what I wanted. I wanted to get off the CEO track and having that kind of level of day to day responsibility. And wanted to go out and work on one more big I, I, idea and that's how i landed with the colleagues that i'm landing at, at this new company called per capita
1: i read a article in business week called a wall street lifers quixotic quest to build a non-racist bank about alex ehrlich and per capita and i've noticed that you are uh like high up in that another founder tell me about how you came across that and how you joined it and what is it? Yeah. First of all, no, no headline writer should ever put the word quixotic
0: in a headline. That undermined it, didn't it? Yeah. And let's go, let's go walk down the street and find out how many people actually know what it means. Right. <laughs> um, but, but, but having said, having said that, so when, when my decision to depart Amalgamated became public, I didn't actually know what I was going to, to do. And I thought I was actually going to take a little more time off than I ended up taking off. But I had had been doing some thinking. I I knew I wanted to work on big ideas. I knew I wanted to work with really smart people who were trying to change the world a little bit. I knew I wanted to be able to work from anywhere. I didn't know what that was exactly. And I got a call from a, um, this is, sounds somewhat like an oxymoron, but from a progressive billionaire, right, who was an investor and was active in politics. He's mentioned in that Business Week article, a guy named Don, Don Don Sussman. Yeah, and and Don Donald was active in lots of things, and we knew each other. We knew each other through that that work, and because Donald's day job is he runs a, a, a hedge fund, he knew you know now my business partner Alex Ehrlich, who spent his career on Wall Street, essentially inventing and growing a business called Prime Brokerage, which did did what Amalgamated did for unions and progressive organizations. The prime brokerage business did for the hedge fund industry. They were the niche bankers for for that industry. So I get this call from Donald. And Donald says, "Well, what are you going to do?" And I said, "I don't know." And he, he says, "Well, I want to introduce you to a guy. He's putting together a really interesting company. And I think you guys would be great working together." And so he's hypes, he's hyping up Alex. And I'm like, "Great, Donald, happy." Happy to meet him. What's he doing? <laughs> he says, Oh, he's gonna put together a bank to bank the unbanked. And I said, Oh, come on. You gotta be kidding me. I've heard every pitch in the world on that, right? And tons of people have tried it. I, I just wrote this book, you know, that in part is about this. Like nobody's ever been able to scale it and make it anything other than a philanthropic, you know, event. I said, I don't think it can be done. And um, he says, Okay, okay, but just do me a favor and just and just take a call. So in all honesty, I, I agree to do this call, and I think I'm just doing this mercy call, right? That it's going gonna, it's gonna to be over, and I'm going say, I'm mad, I'm not. So I met Alex, and Alex is a force. He's a tremendous guy who sort of had this career on Wall Street and saw wall, some of the deficiencies and, and had come to a conclusion that big Wall Street institutions could not solve two problems. They couldn't address issues of income inequality that were running through our economy, And you really couldn't build an organization that really put the issues of sort of inclusion at the center of how to run a company, day-to-day kind of thing. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do it. So anyway, long story short, I was enamored by the notion of actually putting together a company that, you know, was founded on principles of inclusion and trying to really think about that at the beginning. And as I was looking at the early other partners, there were people of color on their early team and there were women on the early team, all, all at sort of equal levels on this. But they all had these incredibly impressive backgrounds and had, and, and some were very early in career, but some were these folks doing venture capital at a very late stage in their career, having built other real businesses. And then there was this notion of actually trying to solve the problem of people who had a real lack of access to the financial world and trying to do it by finding a a means of acquisition, by working with other businesses. And as I just heard these things and I've spent more time with Alex and other members of the team, I was like, this is a really intriguing group of people and it's kind of a righteous cause. And boy, it would be interesting to, to to work on this and be part of it. And so, when when there was still sort of very much a gel of an idea, I, I I agreed that when I left Amalgamated, I would I would join. And so now we're doing it. We've 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 been able to raise some money. We've now got a team of about thirty people. Um, we're settling on a product suite that will offer eight different kinds of basic financial products to to workers. We've got five or six companies who are lined up to want to partner with us and and get and and help us build build these products and we're looking to launch in January of next year. I mean, and what well, I mean by launch like 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 you could open an account with us, anybody could open an account with us. It's been an interesting ride and and is kind of a fun next step on the journey cuz venture capital, the VC world, early stage startups, every, everything else we talked about was embedded within big established institutions. That's not what this is. <laughs> this is really different.
1: What do you like about it compared to that previous? And what do you dislike?
0: So, what I really like about it right now is nothing's impossible. Right, everything's within the realm of possibility, and and the, the, the ability to to you, you know to do it is, is is great. So, the ability to go and shape and mold and form something is 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 amazing. I mean, it's 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 really quite quite fun. What do I not like about it? There's no support infrastructure, so you got to do everything yourself. And uh, not to sound pompous in any way, but going from having an executive assistant to essentially, you know, structured my my travel life and having to, you know, go on Travelocity and make my own travel reservations is kind of is a bit of a shock. Um, but, uh, but 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 I, I guess maybe the other thing that's that's tough is you live in this precarious world, right? You're only there as long as your last fundraising round you know projects you out to. so you've got to, you've got to keep moving and you got to keep moving fast. You have to reinvent quickly. you have to you have to be able to respond to your business and recognize when you're going in the wrong direction and correct it pretty quickly. that's that's hard, but it's also a good challenge. what What is your role exactly? Yeah, my official title is I'm the head of our business development operations, so going out and finding clients to do it. But because I have this background of having run a bank and because we're a small startup and it, people wear lots of hats, I, 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 I really am a partner to Alex and the other senior partners in the firm and helping to think through how we build and structure this, this this company.
1: What do you think about of your prospects? Do you think this is going to work? I think we will find
0: companies that want to offer this to their workers because because our model won't charge them anything, right? We'll make money because we'll have bank accounts that have debit cards and other cards that make interchange income. We're no different than some of the other banks out there except in the fact that we're targeting this group of people that nobody else is targeting. I think we'll be successful in gathering tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of customers who want to open um, accounts with us. The biggest challenge is can we find the right economic model that will allow us to be able to not do what... The only way commercial banks have made money in this sector is imposing significant fees on poor people, essentially, on, on working people. And our model is can we offer a wide variety of financial services over time and charge the lowest fees in the industry. Um, And the question will be, can we, because we've figured out acquisition costs by working through employers and lowering that cost, and maybe we can really use technology and artificial intelligence to think about really cost effective ways of providing customer service. And can we get people to have multiple products with us, not in the way Wells Fargo did it, right? By, by creating bad incentives for people to do it, but by becoming a trusted partner and having the best products in the workplace, it's, it does it pencil out. Can we actually make those numbers work?
1: The the model does it, but now we got to go, now we got to go prove it. Aside from fees, how would this be better for customers or is it just basically a fees thing? fees is just one,
0: one small part of it. If you go into a lot of low income neighborhoods, they're banking deserts. There there is no place. You are subject oftentimes to to relying on the informal sector right for your financial needs. So you go cash your paycheck at the liquor store, or a check cashing store and you you have you know, you know for the pleasure of doing that, you give somebody 4 or 5% of your paycheck right, to, to, to do that. So direct deposit onto a digital platform, you, you cash your check for free, and you're, you're operating. If you're in a um, in, in a bind, right, and you have no other way of getting money, you got to go to a payday lender who's going to potentially end up charging you, you know, completely usurious fees, because you needed a new set of tires or a new refrigerator, things that, pe- that are absolute needs in, in lives. And can we put forward credit products or or early pay access that allows people to avoid those traps operating in this day and age without a basic bank account it means when you have to pay your bills you either have to go to the electric company or you have to go pay for a money order or do these other things and if you can move people into the a world of electronic commerce that can eliminate not just the fees associated with that but the time and the energy that goes in 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 to do this if you can in one platform right be able to deposit your check and then send money back home to your family in Mexico and not have to go to different places and and do that. There's a lot of convenience that happens. And then the other piece of this is not only will we have products, the whole notion here is we're selling financial wellness as a service. When you're in the per capita app in the per capita ecosystem, you'll have access to tremendous amounts of financial wellness content and we'll be sending it to you, really bite-sized kind of digestible things, steps you can take in your financial life to make a smarter financial decision, to save a little bit of money, to incent those kinds of things. And one of the reasons I joined the company was because Alex told me that he was going to hire an anthropologist who would go into communities and, and find out what were the barriers to them actually having a bank account or joining the formal financial system. We did that and we hired this dynamic woman, you know, who spent her entire career finding out why communities don't trust institutions. This is the most non-business kind of thing that you'd ever heard in your life, but she's gone in and done these deep sort of ethnographic interviews. Oh, it's customer research, right? I mean, it's but it's, deeper. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's not just sort of sending out a survey and yeah. see this really deep kind of stuff. And it's really helping form the kinds of things that 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 we'll do as we market our materials in a way that's aimed at building, building trust. It's really about building trust. And so if you can project it out six or seven years from now, and you have a trusted financial partner, not only is that the place where you get your bank account. But that might be the referral source for somebody to you know, do your taxes or somebody to um, get you renter's insurance or the con- all these things that you think about that working people really need.
1: What share of our population is unbanked or banked in a way that they ought to switch over to uh, per capita?
0: The feds would tell you about 5% is truly unbanked, literally has no banking account whatsoever. The numbers for how many are underbanked in that they have a banking account, but it's not one that meets their needs is significantly higher than that 13, 14, 15%. But how many people feel financially vulnerable in their life is more like 55 or 60% of the population, right? The kind of people who who, who are very unsure on the financial decisions that they make, live paycheck to paycheck, don't have enough savings to, to... you know, face an unanticipated $600 charge. That's a trip to the emergency room. That's a new set of tires on a car. That's a refrigerator that's gone kaput. I mean, it's all those kinds of things. And that, it's that sense of financial vulnerability, right, that is really the target the target workforce for us.
1: Would, will you ever build branches?
0: I doubt it. I, I, I think that um, that's that's a tough model to work economically. That is a hyper-local model. It is not a 24-7 kind of model. Um, one of the amazing developments sort of at a high level socially, economically, is how fast smartphones have spread into our economy. Like the, the, I mean, do unbanked people have cell phones, smartphones? They do. They do. It's, like it's it's unbelievable. You, know, you they, they do They don't always know how to use it. They sometimes have to get their kids to help them on some of it. But, but the number of
1: people who have,
0: you know, a smartphone, it's unbelievable because you can't function in life anymore without it. It's pretty, it's pretty hard.
1: It feels to me like this sort of dovetails with amalgamated. Would it make sense to amalgamate the two at some point?
0: <laughs>
1: we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, that's, that's, I'm just trying to get the platform up and running at yeah. this point. Yeah. What is the biggest challenge?
0: Besides just like building technology and all that, like I think the biggest challenge, and it was the same challenge at, at, at Amalgamated, was this sort of general wow. disbelief that you can build a company that is actually geared towards servicing this kind of workforce and do it profitably, right? There's, there's just tremendous disbelief that that can actually be done. And so raising money is going to be challenging. I think that's probably the biggest challenge. Yeah, it hasn't
1: been a challenge recruiting people who want to come work for us to do it. I I bet. I bet you have an advantage in that in a certain way that people with, there are people in that sector or wanting to be in that sector who want to do good. Yeah. And by the way, there's a lot of people who want to invest in this kind of work. We just got to find them. We just got to get connected to them. Well, it's, it is a fascinating quest that you're on. I don't know that it's quixotic. I hope not. Uh, (laughs) um, Is there a question that I didn't ask you about this that I should have? No, I, I, the only thing I'd say is I've,
0: I've, I've had like the luckiest life ever. I've got to do all these, you know, cool things and it's been fun because I've got to do lots of different kinds of things and, and that's kept things,
1: you know, fresh and alive. And it's kind of been fun to relive some of this with you over the last hour or so. Didn't you mention to me before that you're, that you sold your house in DC and are moving to Maine or something?
0: Yeah, Yeah. I am. Tell me about that. I am. So my, so, so my kids are out of the house and 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 things and and um my uh my family has been going to the coast of maine um every summer for the last 30 some years and for the last i don't know five or six or seven years my wife and i have always toyed with the idea well maybe we should buy a place up here maybe we should move up here and in the last year we just decided to do it so yeah so in two weeks we are on our way to, to 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 maine to live there year round um and sort of return back to living in a small town again.
1: Have you run across any other startups or enterprises in the space of trying to help this category of, of people in the country that you think are notable and maybe on the way to being successful?
0: Yeah, there's, there, there are some other folks trying to put together platforms to do finance for affinity or uh, affinity groups, right. And, and trying to sort of do th- do this. There are startups that are trying to recognize that there is deep hardship that happens in people's lives. And can you actually help companies build things like hardship funds and things like that? But there aren't that many startups that I think are trying to solve some of these basic social problems that lower wage working people have. That's kind of still left for philanthropy or government, right, to solve those problems.
1: While we're not unique and we're not the the only one, there's not a lot trying to trying to do this yeah well it's super interesting to hear about um i wish you luck anything else you want to yes. say no it's been fun yeah it's been fun for me too that was keith Mestrich. keith is at per capita.com this is nathaniel g perlman with the great battlefield podcast you can find us at great or by searching for great battlefield in places where podcasts are found